We're going to start today by talking about someone most of you, if not all of you, know what they look like. And this person is on the back of our coins and on the front of our $20 bills. Her name is Queen Elizabeth, and she turned 96 in May. I always knew the age of Queen Elizabeth because she was born the same year that my mom was born. So she turned 96 this May, and the United Kingdom celebrated her 70th year of reign in the spring. So for most of us, we have lived under Queen Elizabeth's reign for our entire lives or most of our lives. But I have a question for you. Did Queen Elizabeth affect your life in any way this past week? Did you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, you know, I wonder what Queen Elizabeth is doing today? Or if you had a choice to make, did you say, I wonder if this choice is going to honor Queen Elizabeth or dishonor her today? Does your hope for the future rest on the reign of our queen? Well, the answer is likely no for most of us. The queen lives in England. We live here. Though her image shows up on our coins and on our bills, or at least the $20 bill, she has little direct influence on our daily lives. Maybe our prime minister, the premier, and the mayor of wherever we live has more influence on our lives. They make decisions that we sometimes agree with or disagree with that do impact how we live or the bottom line in our bank accounts. Sometimes we don't like their decisions. Sometimes we struggle to believe or to understand their words. So we're ruled by a queen who has little or no influence on our daily lives. We're ruled by elected leaders who make decisions that we sometimes don't understand or don't like. And if we're looking for hope or confidence in the future, do we gain any hope or confidence by looking at these leaders? Now, we hear about and have sung about Jesus now as our king. Well, how do we relate to Jesus as our king when we hardly have a relationship with our earthly sovereign, our queen? And might our opinions of our current political leadership affect how we relate to Jesus as our ruler? Most of us don't know how to live under the reign of a king or a queen that we know personally. We have not experienced a close relationship with the sovereign ruler. We generally carry an attitude of skepticism towards many in leadership over us. So how do we relate to Jesus as king over our lives? And if he has a kingdom, what does it have to do with us? And that's what we're going to explore today as we take a little break from the Ezekiel series and look at the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingship and kingdom came up quite a bit during his trial and journey to the cross. And the chief priests used Jesus' claim as king against him to try to portray him as a threat to Rome, the ruling empire of the day. And then there was this very significant conversation between Jesus and the Roman governor that we're going to look at specifically today where Jesus explains the nature of his kingship and kingdom to us. 
And I believe Jesus and his words can provide us with hope and confidence for our future today, wherever we are at. So here's what I'm going to try to prove today. And it is this, the nature of Jesus' kingdom enables us to live with hope and God-centered confidence. And we discover this in the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea at that time. And once we've unpacked Jesus' words, we're going to see why his kingdom can bring us hope and God-centered confidence for the future. So I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, use your devices or there should be a Bible underneath you if you're sitting in the front row in the pews or... Um, uh, if there's one in front of you, if you're not in the front row. And we're looking at John 18, verses 28 to 40 today. So John 18, verses 28 to 40, and it's on page 766 in the Bibles that we have for you. And it reads, starting in verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Jesus has just come through the trial before the Jewish high council or Sanhedrin. And there Caiaphas the high priest charged Jesus to answer the question. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus basically answers yes without using the word yes. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. 
each one of those statements is a claim to divinity or to deity. So they condemn him to death on account of blasphemy. But since the Romans rule the land, the Jewish council cannot carry out the death penalty by means of crucifixion. And they want Jesus crucified to humiliate him and hopefully to stamp out this movement, the Jesus movement that follows him. So in verse 28, we're told they took Jesus from Caiaphas's home to the governor's headquarters. And this is where Rome's highest representative of the region stayed when he was in Jerusalem. He usually lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. But he would go inland to Jerusalem during high Jewish holidays in case there was any trouble. So, the Jews bring, or the Jewish council brings Jesus to Caiaphas early in the morning, maybe five or six in the morning. And then I love the next part of this verse, verse 28. They, the chief priests and their crew, themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So this tradition had developed that Jews could not go into the house of Gentiles or non-Jews for fear of being ceremonially or ritually defiled. And there's all kinds of debate about how that could happen. Maybe they would eat forbidden foods. Maybe they would come upon a pagan shrine. Maybe they would touch something that was defiled or uncleaned. And if that happened, then the law said that you could not participate in the regular worship practices for seven days. And it is the night of, it's going to be Passover that evening. So they are super concerned about not getting defiled by going into Pilate's residence so that they couldn't eat the Passover with their families. But do you see the tragic irony of this? They are so concerned about their external religion, yet they are unconcerned about the fact that they have just had a trial that violates all of their own standards for a trial. And they're okay with false witnesses, and they're okay with people twisting Jesus' words, and they're okay with getting someone innocent executed, but to step across the threshold of a door and to be defiled so I can't eat supper with my family, that's going way too far for them. Do you, do you see the irony there? Majoring on a minor. They are like gangsters who go to mass at 6 p.m. before they go out to murder someone at 7. Yet, Pilate puts up with this. And he goes and he meets them outside his home. Maybe they have an agreement. Maybe he has heard about Jesus. And he wants to figure out if this guy is a threat to Rome. So, he asks them, what's the charge? What accusation do you bring against this man? But they don't provide him with a charge. In fact, they seem taken aback by his question. It seems they thought he would just take Jesus and kill him. But he can't do that. He has to have a charge. So they respond, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So the charge is basically, he's evil. Well, 
you can believe that someone is evil, but that's not going to hold up in a court of law. They have to have violated some sort of law for a solid conviction. And Pilate says, well, if that's the case, you can try him yourself. He's not interested in character charges. He needs to address actions of rebellion or disturbance against Rome. But they come back at Pilate. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Which is interesting because it seems like the Romans did allow the Jewish high council to put people to death by stoning. In fact, we see that happen in Acts 7 when Stephen is killed by stoning. But they don't want Jesus stoned. They want him crucified again to pronounce a curse upon him, to hopefully stamp out his movement, to shut him up in front of everyone. And so they come and want the Romans to do it. And yet... All of this is not an accident, for John the narrator interjects in verse 32 to tell us this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' own words, in fact, like in John 3, 14, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, talking about crucifixion, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or John 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, that is Satan, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So, for Jesus to be crucified actually fulfills his prophecy and the plan of God. So the scene now moves from Pilate and the Jews outside his house to inside the palace where Pilate summons Jesus. And note the setting. We have the representative of the Roman emperor or earthly king of kings before the true king of kings, Jesus himself. And when Pilate sees Jesus, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And commentators note the word you is emphatic, like Pilate is surprised or scornful. And remember what Jesus has just been through. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He faced this intense trial before the Jewish High Council. And once they condemned him, the guards beat him and abused him. And he's probably been awake all night. So he is exhausted, he's been beaten, he is humiliated, probably his clothes are ripped or in rags, and in comes Pilate, the governor, and says, are you the king of the Jews? Yet Jesus responds and says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Jesus seeks to discern the real nature of, of Pilate's question. Pilate is basically asking, are you a political revolutionary who claims to be the king of the Jews and poses a threat to Rome? And the right answer to that question would be, no, not directly at this time. But the priests saw Jesus claiming to be the messianic king over the nation. And if Pilate was asking that, the answer would be yes. 
Jesus seeks to determine if Pilate is simply repeating the high priest's charge or if he really wants to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. And Pilate responds somewhat scornfully to Jesus' question by saying, Am I a Jew? No, I don't care if you're some spiritual king to the Jews. I'm trying to figure out if you're a threat to Rome. After all, it was your own nation and your chief priests who delivered you over to me. And Jesus' response gives us our first answer to the question, what is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So the first answer to our question is Jesus' kingdom is not of this world or from this world. It is a kingdom unlike any earthly kingdom. It is not run like other kingdoms. Its power does not depend on the world's ways. It is not a kingdom with natural borders and a specific group of people. It is not a kingdom that depends on a regular army to keep it in power. And notice Jesus brings that up. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have defended me. Any earthly kingdom needed an army to gain and keep power, but he has no earthly army. His servants did not gather to prevent his arrest, except for Peter, who tried a little. And the good news is that if Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, it has tremendous possibilities. For you and me. Think of a king who is unlike any earthly king that has ever lived. That means that this king will play no political games. There will be no deceit, no promises made with no intention of keeping them, no backroom deals, no scandals, no self-serving initiatives. Jesus is a righteous king who will rule righteously. His kingdom is not of this world, but that doesn't mean that his kingdom does not affect this world. That doesn't mean it's some abstract idea that doesn't affect our lives daily. So the second piece of information we gain that I want to make sure we take with us is that Jesus' kingdom deeply affects our world. So his kingdom is not of this world, but it deeply affects our world. And we see this through his ministry, where Jesus is powerfully active among people. He delivers people from Satan's power and reign. And one commentator writes, the fundamental concept of the kingdom of God in the Bible is that it indicates God's coming to this world to bring judgment and salvation to humankind. When the Gospels portray Jesus powerfully active among people, delivering them from Satan's thrall and bringing to them the blessings of God's good rule, they describe the kingdom of God in action in this world. And God's kingdom is active in our world today because of his purposes and his power. And Jesus' kingdom is active in our lives today as he ministers to us 
And he empowers us to minister. And his spirit works in and through, this, through us. So, so though his kingdom is not of this world, it affects those of us who live in this world. But Pilate does not get this at all. He is still focused on a political threat to Rome. So he says in verse 37, So, you are a king. And Jesus answers this with another aspect of his kingdom. The middle of verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. So what is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? His kingdom is truth. He was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And this does not mean that he came to testify to the abstract concept of truth. Nor does it mean that he came to testify about the idea of truth. He came to bear witness to the truth of God's saving sovereignty. He came to bear witness to the judgment and salvation brought by his coming. And he himself is the truth. Remember at the Last Supper when Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So the truth is that God has come with judgment and salvation to bring hope and rescue to the world. And Jesus came to be a king and to testify to this truth. And on the cross and through the empty tomb, he accomplishes this truth. And some commentators wonder, was Jesus' last statement an invitation to Pilate? All those on the side of truth, what's the exact words that he uses again? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And was he looking at Pilate and, and inviting Pilate with his eyes to, to explore this further? Maybe. We don't know. But we do know how Pilate responded. He simply said, what is truth? And leaves. He dismisses all this talk about Jesus being some king who is threatening Rome. He is convinced Jesus is no big threat. So he goes back to the Jews, determined to try to get Jesus released. And instead they want Barabbas. So we know how that all turned out. But we've answered the question, what is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? It's not of this world, but it deeply affects this, this world. It is a kingdom of truth. And I'm arguing that the nature of Jesus' kingdom enables us to live with hope and God-centered confidence for our futures. Well, how? How does the nature of Jesus' kingdom bring us hope? Well, since Jesus' kingdom is unlike any earthly kingdom, we can live with hope that justice and righteousness will ultimately prevail. If you look closely enough at any human leader, including Christians, you'll find flaws. And we see and experience broken promises and cover-ups and corruption and injustice in the halls of power, and our trust gets worn down, and we conclude we just have to put up with whoever we get, 
And some in government tell the truth, and some lie to us. And some make promises that they intend to keep, and some make promises they know they won't keep. Some people live in societies where the government rules not by the will of the people, but at the end, but from the end of a gun, through brute force. It's all pretty distasteful. And we do need to pray for Christians who try to bring truth and ethics into government, but we don't gain deep hope by putting all our trust in earthly leaders. Yet when we hear about a king whose kingdom is not from this world and is unstained by the world and where there is no corruption, no lying, no deceit, no torturous redefinition of words to try to make something wrong sound right, when we hear that this is a kingdom that does not hold power through brute force, it is a kingdom not limited to a region or people or specific land, it is not limited by deficits, and problems that it cannot solve, this kingdom will rule and reign over all the world with goodness and righteousness, then, then, then we can swell with hope about the thought of living in such a kingdom under such a king. And when we have that picture clearly in mind, we can look at our earthly rulers with more realism. We put less hope in them. We have more realistic expectations. They may do some good, but there will be some bad and division and inevitable disappointments. Yet we don't have to despair because we know Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. So, so we can live with hope as we taste that kingdom and move towards experiencing it in its fullness. And then secondly, how does the nature of Jesus' kingdom give us God-centered confidence for the future? Well, it gives us a solid rock on which to build our lives because it is a kingdom of truth. Now, friends, we live in a relativistic society. And that means that many believe, including those who make laws, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And instead, truth depends on the individual experiences and interpretations of people. And our culture is so immersed in this that we might not even notice our own buy-in into it. And this has resulted in the strange phrase that I am hearing more and more these days called, my truth. Heard that phrase at all? My truth. I'm going to share my truth. And I think what people who are earnestly and honestly doing in that moment is they're saying, I'm going to share my opinion and I'm going to share my experience. But to say it's my truth implies that truth is something that we possess and that we shape based on our own experience and our own interpretations. And you might hear this view stated like this. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. So, if Christianity is true for you, that's great. You go do that and do your church thing, but it's not true for me. I'm not going to do, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing according to my truth. 
and we can all get along as long as we don't impose our truth on one another. John Piper writes about this in a message he gave on John 18 verse 37 back in 1988. So this is 34 years ago. And think how much has changed in 34 years. And he writes this, morality today has been defined in terms of relativism. If you don't believe that the truth you see is binding on me, then you're perceived to be humble, good, and moral. But if you think that the truth that you see is binding on me, then you are arrogant, intolerant, and immoral. Do you hear, do you hear what he's saying? People who say that there is such a thing as absolute objective truth that is outside of us are considered immoral, intolerant, and arrogant today. Whereas people who say that there is no absolute are considered moral, tolerant, and humble. And in a sense, the claim that there is no absolute truth feels liberating at first. We can live however we want. We don't have to obey or subscribe or conform to something outside of us that we don't like. But there are big problems with this viewpoint. The first one is it's self-contradictory. It says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Do you see the problem with that statement? It's an absolute. So if there's no such thing as absolute truth, is your claim, why should I believe your absolute statement? So it's self-contradictory. It's self-defeating. But the bigger problem, I think, then comes when your truth and my truth disagree. What happens when your truth and my truth clash. And Piper gives a very good example, or a good example in his message. He says, say someone punches you in the face. You press charges. The judge hears the case. You say, that guy punched me in the face. That's wrong. But that guy says, I didn't like what you were saying. I didn't agree with your opinion. So to protect my family and my own emotional well-being, I decided to punch you in the face. And I believe that was a good act and being true to myself and my truth. And then the judge rules in favor of the person who punched you. Because the judge says, I have to respect their truth, so I have to let this go. Would you be okay with that? No. That's wrong, except in a relativistic society, there is no universal understanding of right and wrong. There's no absolute truth. Everything is relative. And that's where we live today, friends. That's the world in which we live, the culture in which we live. Many of the clashes that we see between people occur because of these various versions of truth. No wonder we're confused. No wonder kids and teenagers are confused because they get so many conflicting messages from adults and the media about the goodness of relativity. And you know who gets to settle the score? 
between alternative versions of truth. Whoever's in power. Whoever has the power to enforce their version of truth. Well, how different it will be to live in the kingdom of truth. For this purpose I was born and came into the world, said Jesus, to bear witness to the truth. Imagine a world or a society with no deceit, no confusion about right and wrong, no rewriting of the laws of nature to suit whatever we feel like doing, even if it's bad for us. Instead, we live under a king filled with truth and justice. And when we build our lives on a kingdom of truth, we rely on a solid foundation. We don't have to keep redefining and adjusting and changing to the latest cultural fad of right or wrong. And I would much rather build my life on Jesus' kingdom of truth than the shaky sands of relativism. But you might immediately respond to me in your heart with a relativistic worldview that you may have adopted. And say, well, that's okay for you, Tom. But I'm going to do what works for me and what's true for me. But this is not a question of preference. This is a question of truth. Absolute, unconditional truth and reality defined by Jesus, the supreme ruler and king over all of the universe. And he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Have you listened? Have you come under his reign and his lordship? He has the absolute best waiting for you. And it's not some overpromised deal or fad. It's the truth about who we are and who he is and what he did so that we could be forgiven and saved. And if you already live under Jesus' reign, you can live with hope. For in a world with corrupt governments and institutions, in a world where the devil deceives and oppresses, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. In a world trying to affirm the chaos of relativism, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. So you can build your life on that secure foundation. And yet some of you may want to join Pilate. And simply throw up your hands and say, what is truth? You'd prefer to walk away. To carry on with your life as it is. Without any of this external truth stuff. If that's you, I want to encourage you to invite you to go one step further than Pilate did. He just walked away and got on with the business of the day. Trying to solve this issue. But I want to invite you this summer to spend some time examining the life of Jesus. Read the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament of the Bible. In my Bible, it's 100 pages of reading. So if you read 10 pages a day, you could get through the Gospel in 10 days. All four of them. And as you read, ask yourself, does this ring true? Listen for what Jesus might have to say to you. 
You know, Queen Elizabeth will die one day and her reign will end. But Jesus will live forever. His reign will never end. As we go into his kingdom, as we experience it now and look forward to it in its fullness. And so, I pray that the nature of Jesus as king and the nature of his kingdom can bring you hope and God-centered confidence today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have no idea how you were able to enter into that pointed conversation with Pilate after having spent the whole night up bearing with a false trial and all the emotion that came with that bearing with the beatings that you endured and probably the sleeplessness for what you were about to face and yet you engaged in this conversation which still speaks so loudly today we praise you that it has been preserved for us and that it reveals to us who you are. And Lord, we really need your help today. Because we swim in a world that is so relativistic. Where, where truth is scorned. Where it's considered arrogant to claim such a thing as truth. Lord, we, we want to be friends with people. We want to be liked and yet... And yet if we don't affirm the culture, it's like we're just shut off and thrown away. And yet, Lord, what a firm foundation is found in living and basing our lives on you. So help us to live with hope, to live with confidence, and to invite those who are lost in the chaos of this world to join us in the solid foundation of your kingdom. You, the righteous and just king. You who lead a kingdom of truth. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Our closing song today was generated out of a situation of personal suffering. And so if that's where you are today, um, you can sing it that way and just offer up to the Lord the state of your soul and say, yep, this is where I am, Lord. And yeah, I, I need you and I'm, I want to affirm this. But, but for some of us, we can sing it from the perspective of living in a relativistic world where we're probably living with some of the chaos and the destruction that it has wreaked on our families or friends or loved ones. And if we only look at that, we can live with despair. But we can live with hope because of who Christ is and the reality of his coming and his truth. So let's stand together as we sing.